Chapter 5 of Lover or Friend by Rosa Carey The New Master We agree pretty well in our tastes and habits, yet so as with a difference. We are generally in harmony with occasional bickerings, as it should be among near relatives. Essays of Elliot Booty grew tired of barking at the swans long before his master had roused him from his abstraction. It was doubtful how much longer Captain Burnett would have sat with his eyes fixed dreamily on the water if a tall figure in white had not suddenly appeared under the arching trees, and Audrey stood before him. I knew what I should find you, as he rose rather slowly from his seat. I have christened this bench Michael's Seat. How sweet the lake looks this evening. I wish I could stay to enjoy it, but I must go back to the drawing-room. Percival has come, and do you know the dressing-gong sounded ten minutes ago, and you have taken no notice of it? I will go at once, was the answer, but to his surprise she stopped him. Wait one moment, Michael. I have to ask you a favour. I want you to be kind, and to take a great deal of notice of Mr. Blake. He is very young and shy, and though his mother says he is so clever, and indeed father says so too, one would not find it out, because he is so quiet and you know how formidable Percival must be to a shy person. "'And you want me to take your new protégé under my wing,' he returned, dissembling his surprise. She had put her hands on his arm, and was speaking with unusual earnestness, and he knew, by a certain look in her eyes, that something had vexed her. "'He is not my protégé,' she answered quickly. "'You talk as though he were a boy, a mere child, instead of being what he is, an exceedingly clever and gentlemanly young man. Michael, you generally understand me. You're always my ally when Percival is on his high horse, and I want you to stand Mr. Blake's friend tonight. And I'm not even to form my own opinion? Supposing the moment I shake hands with your pro, I mean your visitor, I become conscious of an inward antagonism. You see, Audrey, I am subject to likes and dislikes in common with other people. Oh, you must try to like him, she returned impatiently. I am very much interested in the whole family. We always like the same people, Michael, do we not? In a coaxing voice. I know the Marquis will wear his most judicial aspect tonight. You will perfectly annihilate poor Mr. Blake. This was another sobriquet which Audrey applied to her brother-in-law. They were walking toward the house, but at this point Captain Burnett thought fit to stand still and shake his head with a grieved expression of face. My dear Audrey, I should like to see you on more sisterly terms with Gage's husband. Don't be silly, was the only response. One cannot choose one's brother-in-law. The Marquis makes Gage a splendid husband. No one else could have mastered her. But I never could get on with a man who always thinks he is right about everything. Percival is too immaculate in his own and his wife's eyes to be in harmony with a sinner like myself. And I don't mind confessing to you, Michael, that he never opens his mouth without my longing to contradict him. Audrey said this with such perfect naivete and candor that Captain Burnett could only smile, though sheer honesty made him say a moment afterwards, I think, indeed I have always thought, that you undervalue Harcourt. He is a fine fellow in his way. I like the man to be strong, and Harcourt is strong. He has no pettiness in his nature, and is rather a severe critic, perhaps, and demands a, a little too much from his other people. But you will find that he always practices what he preaches. I wish he understood me better, was the rueful response. Unhappily, he and Gage think their mission is to reform me. Now, Michael, do be quick, or the dinner bell will ring. And Audrey waved her hand gaily, 
and turned into the house, while Michael and his faithful booty followed her more slowly. When Audrey entered the drawing-room, she found her brother-in-law standing in his favorite attitude before the fireplace. He was evidently holding forth on some interesting topic, for Dr. Ross was listening to him with an amused expression of face, and Geraldine was watching him with admiring, wifely eyes. He broke off, however, to greet Audrey, and there was brotherly warmth in his manner as he shook hands with her and asked after her health, a mere civility on his part, as Audrey was never ill. Mr. Harcourt was a good-looking man of about forty. Perhaps he was a year or two more, but he was young-looking for his age, and the absence of beard and moustache gave him a still more youthful aspect. The slight tinge of grey in his hair seemed to harmonise with the well-cut features. The mouth was especially handsome, though a sarcastic expression at times distinguished it. His figure was good, and without being tall, he carried himself with so much dignity as to give the impression of height. He was a man who would always be noticed among other men on account of his strong individuality and sheer force of character. Audrey was right when she owned that he made a splendid husband for Geraldine. Mr. Harcourt was exceedingly proud of his beautiful wife, but from the first hour of her married life he had made her understand that though she managed other people, including her own mother, the husband was to be the one exception, that, in other words, he fully intended to be Geraldine's master. Geraldine had to learn this lesson even on her wedding day. There was some little confusion at the last, a small hitch in the domestic arrangements, and someone, Dr. Ross probably, proposed that the happy couple should wait for a later train. They could telegraph, and dinner could be put back for an hour. Geraldine endorsed her father's opinion, perhaps at the last minute. The young bride would fain have lingered lovingly in the home that had sheltered her so happily. It is a good idea. We should have to drive so dreadfully fast, she said with some eagerness. Yes, we will stay, Percival. My darling, there is someone else to consult, he returned, taking her hand. And someone else votes differently. Dr. Ross, will you ask them to send round the carriage? Geraldine has had excitement enough. It will be far better for us to go. Geraldine did not like her husband any the worse for showing her that he meant to manage for both for the future. She was clever enough to take the hint and to refer to him on all occasions. Before many weeks were over, young Mrs. Harcourt had so fully identified herself with her husband's interests, was so strangely impregnated with his opinions that she insensibly reproduced them. And Percival thinks so-and-so, now replaced the old, decided, that is my opinion, which had hitherto leavened her conversation. Who would have thought that Geraldine, who snubbed all her lovers so unmercifully, and who would never listen to one until Percival came, sword and conquered, who would have imagined that this very exacting young woman would have turned out a submissive and patterned wife, was Audrey's remark when she returned from her first visit to Hillside. But in her heart she respected her brother-in-law for the change he had effected. Well, Audrey, observed Mr. Harcourt, with a mischievous twinkle in his eyes, so I hear you have been enacting the part of Good Samaritan to the widow Blake and her children. What do you think of the bewitching widow and her Mary Queen of Scots beauty? Did she make an impression, eh? She was very handsome, returned Audrey curtly, for she was not pleased with her brother-in-law's quizzical tone. How long had she stopped out with Michael? Barely ten minutes, and yet Percival was in possession of the whole story. I shall be writing to Edith tonight, and I must tell her all about it, he went on, for if there was one thing in which he delighted, it was teasing Audrey and getting a rise out of her. In reality, he was very fond of her. He admired her simplicity and the grand earnestness of her character but he took the brotherly liberty 
of disagreeing with her upon some things. He told his wife privately that his one desire was to see Audrey married to the white man. She is a fine creature, and she wants training and keeping in order. Now I know the man who would just do for her, he said once. But though Geraldine implored him to say whom he meant, and mentioned a dozen names in her womanly curiosity, Mr. Harcourt could not be induced to say more. He was no matchmaker, he thanked heaven, and he would be ashamed to meddle with such sacred mysteries. If there was one thing in which no human opinion ought to rashly intrude, it was when two people elected to enter the holy state of matrimony. It was enough that he knew the man, though he never intended to take a step to bring them together. I think we had better drop the subject, as Mr. Blake will be here directly, retorted Audrey in her most repressive tones. Father, do you know you have forgotten to wind up the drawing-room clock? I think it must be nearly seven. It is past seven, answered her brother-in-law, producing his watch. Mr. Blake is keeping the dinner waiting. No one but a very young man would venture to commit such a solecism. Under the circumstances, it is really a breach of good manners. Don't you agree with me, Dr. Ross? But Dr. Ross hesitated. He rarely agreed with such sweeping assertions. Geraldine murmured, Very true, which her mother echoed. That is too bad, exclaimed Audrey, who never could hold her tongue. If you had only seen the state of muddle they are in at the great cottage, I dare say Mr. Blake has been unable to find anything. His mother does not seem a good manager. Hush, I hear a bell, interrupting herself. Now you will not be kept any longer from your dinner, Percival. I was not thinking of myself, he returned with rather an annoyed air, for he was a quick-tempered man, and he was really very hungry. Thanks to his wife's splendid management, the meals were always punctual at Hillside. A deviation of five minutes would have boded woe to the best cook. Mr. Harcourt was no domestic tyrant. The boys, the servants, always looked upon him as a kind friend. But he was an exact disciplinarian, and the wheels of the domestic machinery at Hillside went smoothly. If Geraldine complained that one of the servants did not do her duty, his answer was always prompt. Send her away and get another. A servant without a conscience will never do for me. But as a matter of fact, no master was being served. To Audrey's relief, Michael appeared with Mr. Blake. He came in looking a little pale from the exertion of dressing so hurriedly, and Audrey's conscience pricked her for want of consideration as she saw that he limped more than usual, always a sign with him of over-fatigue. Mr. Blake looked handsomer than ever in evening dress, and Audrey noticed that Geraldine looked at him more than once, as though his appearance struck her. He certainly seemed very shy, and made his excuses to his hostess in a low voice. I ought not to have accepted Dr. Ross's kind invitation, he said, starting a little, as the dinner bell immediately followed his entrance. Everything is in such confusion at home. I suppose it was like hunting for a needle in a truss of hay, observed Michael in a genial voice. I can imagine the difficulties of making a toilet under such moving circumstances. No pun intended, I assure you. Don't look as though you want to hit me, Harcourt. I would not be guilty of a real pun for the world. Mr. Harcourt was unable to reply at that moment, as he had to offer Audrey his arm and follow Dr. Ross into the dining room. But as soon as they were seated and grace had been said, he addressed Michael. I need not ask an omnivorous reader as you are, Burnett, if you remember Elia's remarks about puns. I suppose you mean that a pun is a pistol let off at the ear, not a feather to tickle the intellect. Poor old Elia, what a man he was. With all his frailties, he was adorable. Hm, 
I shall be sorry to go as far as that, but I own I like his quaint, racy style. Dr. Ross is a fervent admirer of St. Charles, as Thackeray once called him. Indeed I am. I agree with Angel in regarding him as the last of the Elizabethans. I love his fine humour and homely, fantastic grandeur of style, returned Dr. Ross warmly. The man's whole life, too, is so wonderfully pathetic. Few scenes in fiction are so touching as that sad scene where the unhappy Mary Lamb feels the dreaded attack of insanity coming on, and brother and sister, hand in hand and weeping as they go, perform that sorrowful journey across the fields to the house where Mary is to be sheltered. I used to cry out that story as a boy. Audrey drew a long breath of relief. Her father had started on one of his hobbies. All would be well now. For one moment she had been anxious, very anxious. Like other men, Michael had his weaknesses. Nothing would annoy him more than to be supposed guilty of a premeditated pun. He always expressed a great deal of scorn for what he called a low form of wit. And which is far removed from a wit, he would add, as the slums of the Seven Dials are from Buckingham Palace. Mr. Harcourt was quite aware of this fastidious dislike on Michael's part. It was therefore on pure malice that he had asked that question about Ellier, but Michael's matter-of-fact answer had baffled him, and the sole result had been to start a delightful discussion on the writings of Charles Lamb and his contemporaries, a subject on which all three men talked exceedingly well. Audrey listened to them with delight. She was aware that Mr. Blake, who sat next to her, was silent, too. When a pause in the conversation occurred, she turned round to address him, and found him regarding her with an air of intelligent curiosity. You seem to take a great deal of interest in all this, he said with a smile. Most ladies would consider it dry. I suppose you read a great deal. I'm afraid not. I love reading, but one finds so much else to do. But it is always a pleasure to hear my father talk. My brother-in-law, too, is a very clever man. So I should imagine. And Captain Bennett, is he also a relative? Only a sort of cousin, but he has no nearer ties, and he spends half his time at Woodcott. My sister and I look upon him as a brother. In fact, he has supplied a great want in my life. From a child I have so longed to have a brother of my own. Mr. Blake looked down at his plate. A brother is not always an undivided blessing, he said in a low voice especially when he is a daily and hourly reproach to one. Oh, you know what I mean. Throwing back his head with a quick, nervous gesture. My mother says she has told you. I saw you looking at Kester this afternoon, but you are aware it was all my fault. But it was only an accident, she returned gently. I hope that you are not morbid on the subject, Mr. Blake. Boys are terribly venturesome. I wonder more of them are not hurt. I am quite sure Kester does not blame you. No, you are right there but somehow it's difficult for me to forget that my unlucky slip has spoiled the poor fellow's life. He is a very good and patient, and we do all we can for him, but one dare not glance at the future. Excuse my bothering you with such a personal matter, I cannot forget the way you looked at Kester, and then my mother, and said she had told you the whole story. I was very much interested, she began, but just then Mr. Harcourt interrupted them by a remark pointedly addressed to Mr. Blake, so that he was obliged to break off his conversation with Audrey. This time the ladies were decidedly bored. None of them could follow the discussion. The conversation at Woodcut was rarely pedantic. But this evening Mr. Harcourt chose to argue a purely scholastic question, some translation from the Greek, which he declared to be full of gross errors. Audrey felt convinced that the subject had been chosen with the express purpose of crushing the new master. 
on this topic, Michael would be unable to afford him the slightest help. True, he had been studying Greek for his own pleasure the last two years at her father's suggestion, and had made very fair progress, but only a finished scholar could have pronounced with any degree of certainty on such a knotty point. She was therefore all the more surprised and pleased when she found that Mr. Blake proved himself equal to the occasion. He had kept modestly in the background while the elder men were speaking, but when Mr. Harcourt appealed to him, he took his part in the conversation quite readily and expressed himself with the greatest ease and fluency. Indeed, he not only ventured to contradict Mr. Harcourt, but he brought quite a respectable array of authorities to back his opinions. Audrey felt so interested in watching the changes of expression on her brother-in-law's face that she was quite reconciled to the insuperable difference that such a topic offered to her understanding. A sarcastic curve round Mr. Harcourt's mouth relaxed. He grew less dry and didactic in speech. Each moment his manner showed more earnestness and interest. The silent young master was by no means annihilated. On the contrary, he proved himself a worthy antagonist. Audrey was quite sorry when Geraldine, stifling a yawn, gave her mother an imploring glance. Mrs. Ross willingly took the hint, and as Michael opened the door for them, he whispered in Audrey's ear, He is quite capable of taking care of himself, and Audrey nodded assent. She lingered in the hall a moment to look on the moonlight, and on opening the drawing-room door, she heard a few words in Geraldine's voice. Splendidly handsome, dangerously so in my opinion. What do you think, mother? Well, my dear, I have seldom seen a finer young man and then his manners so nice. Some clever young people are always pushing themselves into the conversation. They think nothing of silencing older men. Mr. Blake seems very modest and retiring. Yes, but he is too handsome, was the regretful reply, and then Audrey joined them. I knew you would say so, she observed with quite a pleased expression. Handsome is hardly the word. Mr. Blake has a beautiful face. He is like a Greek god. Geraldine drew herself up a little stiffly. My dear Audrey, how absurd! Do Greek gods have olive complexions? How Percival will laugh when I tell him that. To be sure, returned Audrey, calmly. Thank you for reminding me that you are married, Gage. I am always forgetting it. That is the worst of having one's sister married. One is never sure that one's little jokes and speeches are not repeated. Now, as my confidences are not intended for Percival, I will learn slowly and painfully to hold my tongue for the future. This very natural speech went home, as Audrey intended it should. With all her dictatorial ways and clever management, Geraldine had a very warm heart. Oh, Audrey, dear, she said, quite grieved at this, I hope you are not speaking seriously. Of course I will not repeat it to Percival if you do not wish it, but when you are married yourself you will know how difficult it is to keep back any little thing that interests one. When I am married, I mean if I be ever married, substituted Audrey, blushing a little, as girls will. I hope I shall be quite as capable of self-control and discrimination as in my simple days. I have never considered the point very closely, but now I come to think of it, I would certainly have an understanding with my husband on the wedding day. My dear Clive, I would say to him, Clive is a favourite name of mine, I hope I shall marry a Clive. You must understand once for all that though I intend to treat you with wifely confidence, I shall only tell my own secrets, not other people's. And he will reply, Audrey, you are the most honourable of women. I respected you before. I venerate you now. Audrey, how you talk. But Mrs. Harcourt could not help laughing. Audrey was looking very nice this evening. White always suited her. To be sure, her hair might have been smoother. 
There is some sort of charm about her that is better than beauty, she thought with sisterly admiration, and then she asked her mother if she did not think Percival looked a little pale. He works too hard, she continued, and he will not break himself of his old bachelor habit of sitting up late. Men like their own way. You must not be too anxious, retorted Mrs. Ross tranquilly. When I first married, I worried myself dreadfully about your father, but I soon found it was no use. Look at him now. Late hours have not hurt him in the least. No one has better health than your father. But the young wife was only half comforted. My father's constitution is different, she returned. Percival is strong, but his nerves are irritable. His organization is more sensitive. It is burning both ends of the candle. I tell him he uses himself up too lavishly. I used to say much the same things to your father, but he soon cured me. He asked me once why I was so bent on bringing round to my opinions. I do not try to alter yours, I remember he said once, in his half-joking way. I do not ask you to sit up with me, though no doubt that is part of your wifely duty. I allow you to go to bed when you are sleepy, in the most unselfish way. So, my dear, you must allow me the same liberty of action. And would you believe it, I never dared say another word to him on the subject. You are a model wife, are you not, mother? observed Audrey, caressingly. No, dear, I never deserved your father, returned Mrs. Ross with much feeling, and the tears started to her eyes. If only my girls could have as happy a life. I am sure dear Geraldine has done well for herself. Percival makes her an excellent husband, and if I could only see you happily settled, Audrey, I would be perfectly satisfied. Are you so anxious to lose me? asked the younger girl reproachfully. You must find me a man as good as father, then. I am not so sure that I want to be married. I fancy an old maid's mission will suit me best. I have too many plans in my head. No respectable man would tolerate me. May I ask what your ladies are talking about? asked Captain Burnett as he sauntered lazily round the screen that even in the summertime, shut in the fireplace and made a cosy corner. Mr. Blake followed him. Audrey looked back at them, both calmly. I was only suggesting my possible mission as a single woman. Don't you think I should make a charming old maid, Michael? And Audrey folded her beautifully shaped arms and drew herself up, but her dimple destroyed the effect. Cyril Blake darted a quick look at her, then he crossed the room and sat down by Mrs. Ross and talked to her and Geraldine until it was time for him to take his leave.